So as Mark opens up his gospel here, one thing is very clear. If you were to think of our lives like cars of a train being attached to an engine, our lives as Christians should be bound to Jesus. Another way of saying it is that our lives should be tethered to Jesus. Wherever he leads us, we should be very willing to follow him. Now, if you're joining us this morning, last week we began a series in the book of Mark where Jesus is introduced in the very first line of the book. It says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And Mark is unpacking this gospel of Jesus, and he wants us to know that this good news involves who Jesus is. And so last week, we looked at the titles to Jesus. He is the Christ, the Messiah, who has been promised throughout Old Testament history. Israel was looking for a Messiah who would come, a deliverer who would come. And not only is he the Messiah who is coming to deliver, but he's also the Son of God. He is divine in nature. And so last week we teased out those two titles going through the book of Mark and just seeing how Mark colors them in for us. Well, this morning we see Jesus' first words in the book of Mark. And then his first real actions in ministry here as he steps into his role as the Messiah. There are two points to the sermon this morning. The first point is simply the reality of God's kingdom. And then the second point is the response to God's kingdom. Now if you're taking notes on a, maybe a blank sheet of paper, we're going to spend about 90% of our time on that first point. The reality of God's kingdom. We're going to let that be the weight that leads us into response. So we're starting with the reality of God's kingdom. And just very simply, as Josh read verse 14, it says, John was arrested. This is John the Baptist. He had called out Herod Antipas, who is the king of that region, for taking his brother's wife, Herod's uh, brother's wife. Herod didn't like that. His new wife didn't like that. So John ends up in jail. And in one sense, his ministry along the Jordan River is done. He's no longer preaching and preparing a way for the Lord. He's in jail right now and he'll lose his head pretty soon. We'll see that in chapter 6. Now that John has done his work in preparing a way for the Lord, Jesus steps forward and his message is very simple and you see it in verse 15. Here's Jesus' first words in the Gospel of Mark. He says, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. That's, that's Mark's opening statement from Jesus that he wants us to see. And this is going to be an important statement that, again, is crucial to understanding the book or seeing how Mark puts themes together. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. So we're going to look at several matters here as it relates to Jesus' statement. The first matter here is simply this. Jesus says the time is fulfilled. What does he mean when he says that the time is fulfilled? We see language like this from the Apostle Paul in Galatians 4 when he says that the, when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So here's that phrase, time is fulfilled, or Paul saying the fullness of time. 
When Jesus is saying that the time is fulfilled, he's simply saying that an era that has been in existence has now come to completion and it's time for a new era to begin. So those of you who are in school, at the end of May, you might say something like, the time of the school year has been met. It has been fulfilled. And knowing that the school year has been filled up with its proper amount of time, you know that something new is coming. You, you've been through this time and you might even be on the tail end of school and now that time is filled up, it's met its purpose and now you're looking forward to this summer. So when Jesus is saying, I want you to know that the time has been fulfilled. He is saying that this previous era is coming to an end. It's, it's about done right now. And what is the time that he's referring to? He's referring to the anticipation from the Old Testament that the Messiah King was going to come. For, for centuries, here are the Jews saying... We're living in this time when the Messiah is coming. We're looking for this descendant of David who's going to sit on a throne and rule for us. We're just waiting and waiting. We're waiting our time here. And Jesus comes and says, okay, the time is fulfilled. It's done. Here I am. There's a second matter that he takes up here just in this statement, and we'll bring this all together here in a moment. He talks about the kingdom of God. So the time is fulfilled, we're waiting for a king, and now he says, here is the new era that we're entering into, the kingdom of God, and he says, the kingdom of God is at hand. And so you just take your hand right here, and you know that it is within proximity to you, it's present with you, and Jesus is announcing the arrival of this kingdom. Now, when you think about a kingdom, there are three categories that are helpful for you to have in place. Number one is this. For a kingdom to be present, there needs to be a king who has rule and authority. There has to be a king who has rule and authority. <clears throat> Not only does there need to be a king, but kingdom is made up of two words, king, and then the second part, D-O-M, for domain or dominion. So there needs to be a domain over which that king is ruling, so you have a king, that's part one. You have a dominion or a domain over here. But it's not just a king and a dominion. That king, thirdly, has to exercise rule and authority in that domain. You have to see that king actually ruling or else he's a poser here. And remember, the Jews are saying, we are longing for a king to come and set up his kingdom so that we can enter into this new era. But Jesus is not proclaiming the kingdom that they are expecting. He is proclaiming, notice how it's characterized, a kingdom of what? A kingdom of God. In other words, this kingdom will be uniquely characterized by God being the king, having his own domain, and then exercising his power within that domain. So you, you can begin to see where the Jews might be disappointed as we go through the Gospel of Mark saying, we wanted a Davidic king who would rule in Israel and who would kick out all the Roman soldiers here. 
that's going to be expectations that Jesus doesn't meet for people. Okay, so we've covered two aspects. The time is fulfilled. This kingdom of God is at hand. But let's tease out, thirdly, just a little bit more of the kingdom. Let's look through Mark for a few minutes and see descriptions of this kingdom so that it starts to settle in place in our minds. As you go throughout the Gospel of Mark, the kingdom of God comes up several times and it just helps us get a clearer picture of what this kingdom is. So you've got your Bible open. Go over to chapter 4 and look at verse 11. Here's a description of the kingdom of God here. Jesus said to them, to you has been given, and notice how he describes the kingdom here. To you has been given the secret of the kingdom of God. Okay, so he describes the kingdom in this term secret. When it comes to secrets, we're saying that a message is not very obvious. It's a secret in the sense that a lot of people do not understand this message yet. And so we know that one aspect about the kingdom is that people won't understand Jesus' announcement that, hey, a kingdom is here. Second, look down at verse 26. He uses parables here and he says, the kingdom of God is as if a man should scatter seed on the ground. So think agriculturally. Somebody's going out to their garden and they're scattering seed on the ground. What do you do? You plant it. He sleeps and rises night and day. So he goes through this for maybe a week or two weeks. And then he goes back out and he sees that the seed is starting to sprout up. Then after more weeks of growth, the earth earth produces by itself first the blade, then the ear, then the full grain in the ear. But when the grain is ripe at once, he puts in the sickle because the harvest has come. And so here you've got this agriculture picture where plants aren't really flashy. They don't just pop in the seed and then all of a sudden, boom, they're there in front of you. This is something that takes time. Growth is involved. And then you have Jesus presenting this picture of harvest where Jesus comes and and gathers in people to himself. Chapter 4, verse 30. The kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. A mustard seed is very small in nature, one of the smallest tree seeds. Uh, When you think about a maple leaf with those helicopters and you know the seed is on the back end of it or an acorn, those are kind of larger seeds in comparison to a mustard seed, which is very tiny in nature. And yet that tiny seed has enough power to be planted in the ground and form a strong, mature tree. You could say it this way, that if the kingdom of God is like a seed, the kingdom of God has like a small beginning nature to it. Then go over to chapter 10. Jesus brings it up again, chapter 10, verse 14. This is the scene where Jesus is bringing, or where the children are coming to Jesus and the disciples say he's too busy and they kind of get in his way, the, the way of the children. Verse 14, when Jesus saw it, he was indignant and he said to them, let the children come to me, do not hinder them for, and here's the phrase, for to them, for to such belongs the kingdom of God. 
Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a small child shall not enter it. Okay, so now he's talking about you want into this kingdom? You want to receive this kingdom in your life? He's saying, picture a child who has his hands out believing that he will receive something. God's kingdom is one that you receive, kind of like a child holding his hands out, expecting something to be placed into it. You don't work to get into this kingdom. You don't have to be incredibly smart. You're not going to have missiles and submarines to get your kingdom to advance. This is God's kingdom, and it's received with the kind of faith that a child would exercise, simple in nature, believing in nature. He goes on in verse 23, where that rich young ruler had come to Jesus and didn't want to let go of his money. Jesus says this in verse 23, he looked around and said to his disciples, how difficult it will be for those who have wealth to enter into the kingdom of God. Verse 24, the disciples were amazed at his words, but Jesus said to them again, children, how difficult it is to enter the kingdom of God. It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich person to enter the kingdom of God. So typically you would expect that a king wants to hang out with wealthy people, you know, get his donors and, hey, you're on my side, you're in my kingdom. This, this kingdom is showing all kinds of different characteristics. So what is this kingdom that Jesus is talking about? He clearly does not have a crown on his head and he doesn't have a general at his side and an army behind him. Well, to help us better understand this kingdom, Mark unpacks Christ's kingship and his authority and the domain in which he exercises this authority. So this is where we are picking up Mark's episodes. So we're going to look at three episodes this morning as we finish up point number one. And in each of these episodes, you're seeing Jesus function in a realm with authority. And so Mark is purposefully bringing these episodes to support the statement about the kingdom of God is at hand here. What is this kingdom? Okay, let's see the king act. Let's move down to verse 21. We'll come back later and get verses 16 and following. They went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. Now, just a quick mental picture in your head for what's about ready to take place. I think it's helpful for us to understand synagogues in the first century. They were rectangular in nature, almost like a hallway down the children's hallway and maybe expand it to twice that size, but it's longer like that. On either side of this room in the synagogue, there were chairs. Sometimes there were like little tiers or bleachers that could stack up maybe two or three rows high. The rabbi or the scribe uh, would sometimes grab a scroll and teach from that scroll and maybe sit down in a chair. Otherwise, the rabbi or scribe could be in the middle of the synagogue teaching both sides. And here is Jesus who walks into a synagogue and he's teaching. And in verse 22, notice the authority that starts to be present here. They were astonished. That is the crowd. They were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. 
So they are stunned by how this new teacher connects with them. And you can think, here is Jesus, the fulfillment of all of these Old Testament prophecies of a king who is coming. And of course, you can imagine that Jesus, the son of God, is looking at these people and teaching and preaching with a kind of weightiness, that unction that says, you have to get this, folks. And these, these people had not heard this kind of teaching before. Well, right in the middle of his teaching, verse 23, Mark uses this word quite a bit, and immediately, there was in their synagogue a man with an unclean spirit. So here's Jesus in the middle of two crowds, if you will, and Mark says, here's a guy with an unclean spirit, and he cried out to the teacher and said, what have you to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are. You are the Holy One of God. I mean, just put yourself in that synagogue. I mean, put yourself here. You're, you're sitting along the side here, maybe where Mark George is, or you know, maybe where Elijah is over here. And, and all of a sudden, I'm in the middle, and, and somebody has this sort of Pentecostal outburst in the middle of our sermon here, and says, Nate, what are you talking about? What have you to do with any of us? You're wondering... How is the leader going to handle this scenario? What's going to happen next? Now, Mark gives us some details. He says that this man has an unclean spirit, which is uh, another name for a demon. I think he's using the term unclean spirit just for emphasis, to let us know that this spirit is contaminated. He is polluted. He is the epitome of sin. No moral purity here. And here is Jesus who is looking at this man here. And in verse 25, here is the king. He simply says, be silent and come out of him. And next, the unclean spirit convulses the man. Luke's gospel says that the man is thrown down onto the ground and crying out with a loud voice, this unclean spirit comes out of the man. And now everybody is stunned. The text says that they were amazed at what had just happened with this man who was indwelt with this unclean spirit. So their response in verse 26 or verse 27 is amazement to the point that they're questioning themselves saying, what is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits and they obey him. Okay, do you see the aspects of kingdom starting to come in? A man shows up. It's a king. He's teaching with authority and people are saying, this is resonating with our hearts. An unclean spirit comes into this realm and starts challenging this king's authority. And this king rebukes him just with words and says, be silent, come out of him. And the response from the people is like, what is this? That he can just speak with words and have that kind of authority. And all of a sudden, this unclean spirit, this demon is gone. Jesus is exercising his authority. Episode 2, you see it in verse 29. And immediately, he left the synagogue. So it's on the heels of what just happened. 
And he enters the house of Simon and Andrew. Simon is just another name for Peter. So Peter and Andrew, Simon and Andrew. And he's got James and John. Now Simon's mother-in-law lay ill with a fever, and immediately they told Jesus, him, about her. So Jesus came in and took her by the hand and lifted her up. And the fever left her. So here's somebody who is sick. Jesus comes in, grabs her hand. Nobody else has been able to have the kind of power to heal her. He comes to her. He heals her. She stands up. But notice what else takes place here. Mark adds just a few words to round out the story here in verse 31. She began to serve them. Now, if you've had a fever and that fever breaks, it's good news that the fever breaks. But for the next X amount of hours, your body is weak and you're just recovering. There's something different about this story here that this woman who has been ill in one moment is lifted up and not only is the fever gone from her, but her health has been restored like that. Only Jesus can do this. Mark continues on. That evening, the same day that he had healed Peter's mom, that evening at sundown, people are starting to hear about this. They brought to him all who were sick and oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. There's Jesus. We've heard that he cast out a demon in the synagogue. We've heard that he healed Peter's mom. So let's bring our sick and let's bring our lame to him. So they bring them all to the door of Peter's house. And there is Jesus, verse 34. It says that he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons, and he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. We'll come back to that in further sermons. So here you see Jesus, again, exercising authority and power. Verse 40, episode number three. There's a leper who comes to Jesus. He came to him, imploring him, and kneeling, he said to Jesus, if you will, you can make me clean. Now, leprosy is not a problem in our day, at least in our Western world. But leprosy is a very highly contagious disease, and without the right medicines, which they did not have at the time, it will result in a slow-growing disease that will ravage somebody's body and eventually kill them. It's highly contagious through touch, Starts with little sores on the skin, then lesions on the skin can attack people's eyesight. The nerves get attacked. And over the course of years, it can become so bad that limbs start to fall off, the body shuts down, and you're dead. In the Old Testament law, there was a place for lepers to go. They couldn't be part of everyday society because of this highly contagious disease. And according to Jewish custom, if a leper comes out of the leper colony, that leper is only allowed to go within 50 paces of people just to keep that safe barrier zone in between. So when this leper comes walking up to Jesus, this is somewhat scandalous that he would have the boldness, the gall, to step outside of the colony and close that gap of 50 paces and walk right up to Jesus. But he's got faith. And these words are, if you will, if you desire, I know that you can make me clean. 
So what happens? Jesus touched him. It says here in verse 41 that Jesus was moved with pity. He stretched out his hand and touched him. I mean, if you can just put yourself in this scenario where the disciples are watching this unfold, they know that this man is a leper, and they're probably backing up, keeping distance between themselves and the leper, but here is Jesus who is willing to step into this dominion, this realm. And the text says that he is moved with pity. I mean, let the humanity of Jesus settle in on you that he saw this man perhaps ravaged by the leprosy, knowing that his life had been cut off from, from society, and the weight of this man's trials moves Jesus. And his plea was, Jesus, if you will, you can make me clean. And just in that moment, Jesus says, I will. And not only does he just stand there, but he reaches out his hand and touches the leper and immediately verse 42 it says the leprosy left him and he was made clean now why is mark including this event here this event is not primarily to teach us to go to the sick and step into those realms although god might lead us to the sick to step into those realms this is not that passage where we would say, okay, go and help the hurting, although God might lead us to help the hurting. Mark is putting this scenario here because leprosy is impossible to conquer. You can't defeat it in the first century. The only thing that you do is create space and move away from it. But here is Jesus like just pushing back the barriers. Get out of my way. This is nothing for me. In fact, I see people who are gripped by this kind of stuff, and I'm moved with pity, and this is why I have come. I have come to show that I am the king, and here's another opportunity for me to show how great I am. So Mark is using this for us to see this is the authority of Jesus, and this is this little seed of the kingdom that is being planted, and all of a sudden you're starting to see fruit come out of it. Here is Jesus and all of his power and all of his authority. So what is the kingdom? What is it? Well, we can simply say that it is the rule and reign of Jesus' authority in people's lives. This is how Mark is unpacking it. The kingdom of God is at hand right now. What is this kingdom? It's not, here's a crown, I'm stepping into Palestine now and I'm setting up my kingdom. Mark is saying, I want you to see this kingdom that it is the rule and reign of a king in people's lives and in this spiritual realm. Here comes Jesus to establish his kingdom. Now there's one more episode that begins in chapter two, but we don't have enough time to cover that this morning. So we're gonna pick up on that next week. But it shows really more and perhaps the most important aspect of Jesus' rule as a king. But what we're seeing up to this point is that Jesus is bringing in a kingdom. He is a king. He is exercising his authority over all aspects of creation, including the demons, the diseases, people's hearts. 
And what should our response be now? What should be our response to Jesus, this king who is bringing in his kingdom? So point number two, the response to God's kingdom. Go back to verse 15. Jesus said, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. What is the response? Number one, it is repentance and belief. Jesus says, repent and believe in this good news. Now, what is repentance and belief? And why would we combine them into one? Basically, two sides of the same coin. To have repentance, you're going to have belief. To have belief, you're going to have repentance. Repentance means simply a change of mind. To go from thinking one way about God to thinking about him in another way. In other words, the biblical way. And of course, if your mind is changed, your decisions and actions are going to be changed. It means there's going to be a new pattern in life. Repentance is now going from the direction that you were going to now following after God and submitting to him. This is the message that John preached. He said, repent for the kingdom of God is at hand. It's the message that Peter repent when he said, repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. So we can say that repentance is at the heart and soul of someone who is coming into the kingdom of God. We could say it's at the heart and soul of someone who is in the kingdom of God. Repentance is a way where we're thinking differently than we were before. But with repentance... If you're going to change, you have to have something that you're changing to, something that you believe in. So that's why I can say, repent and believe. You're going to turn, but at the same time that you're turning, there's belief in something that you're turning to. Jesus says that we are to believe in verse 15. Believe in what? Believe in the gospel. And Mark has been saying, this is the gospel in verse 1, that Jesus is the Christ. He is the Son of God. Jesus is the King who has arrived. He is the Messiah. And the episodes that he unpacks in chapter 1 are proof that this is this King stepping into this kingdom, bringing this kingdom with him. And so a question then is obvious for us. If you are not a Christian... Why have you not repented of where you have been going with your life and believed in this particular king? Why are you not repenting of the way you're thinking and trusting in Jesus as a true deliverer? Why are you not saying, I truly believe in this king. I'm going to repent of where I've been. If you're a non-Christian, just very simply today, you could do that. If God's at work in your heart and you're saying, yes, I'm starting to see this, you could repent even in the, the quietness of your seat right now. And your heart is going one direction. You're saying, if this is true about Jesus, I should be following him. You do that right now in the quietness of your seat. Perhaps today you will repent. But Jesus doesn't stop there with repentance and belief. Look at the next paragraph in chapter 1. He was passing alongside the Sea of Galilee. And he sees Simon and Andrew. And they're casting a net into the sea for they were fishermen. And Jesus says to them, now follow me. 
and I will make you fishers of men. And so look at what Peter and Andrew do. Immediately, there's that word again, after Jesus calls them to himself, they leave their nets where they are and they begin to follow him. And then Jesus goes a little bit further and there's two more brothers who, they're with their dad Zebedee and and they're in the boat and they're probably taking care of their nets as well. And Jesus comes to James and John and he's like, hey guys, time for you, come on, follow me. And so the second response is simply following Jesus. There's repentance and belief. Okay, I've changed my way of thinking. I'm believing in him and now I'm hooking up to him. I'm tethering my life to him and wherever he leads me now, I follow. It's interesting how he calls Peter and Andrew or Simon and Andrew and then not too much further later, here is James and John. It's like, hey, you're not going to be alone. I'm going to bring other people along with us. It's not going to be just us. There's going to be others with me. What Mark is driving at in terms of a response to the call of a kingdom is that those who have repented and believed will have this pattern of now following Jesus. To follow someone means now direction in life. They're setting the direction. To follow someone means if I'm following a leader, I am submitting my life to that leader. To follow someone means I'm trusting them as that leader. These characteristics, direction, submission, and trust, are they present in your life this morning? Peter and Andrew are at their nets. You could say that we all have our nets that we're working on, or we all have our things in life that we're presently at. But when Jesus comes along and says, follow me, it will be a surrender of what we're doing right there to now a new task that he gives to us. Now, as a church, we're seeing this happen in a very pronounced way. Several weeks ago, Pastor Luke announced that God has been calling them down to Utah for the sake of the gospel. That's a pretty wild call on their lives. Like, hey, follow me from Grand Haven, 25 degrees, all the way down to the desert in Salt Lake. And if Jesus is king, the proper response for Luke and Karen when the call comes is, okay, yes, you're leading us. We will follow you down to Utah and do what you have us do there. And just as Jesus calls Peter and Andrew and then comes along and says, okay, James and John, hey, you're next. It might not be unlike Jesus to duplicate that here where here's Simon and Simonette here. And where's James and John? Is, is he calling any of you to say, okay, okay, I will leave the nets that I've been working with at Lakeshore in Grand Haven in the Tri-Cities. You're calling me to be faithful to you and you're leading me out of here along to Salt Lake. 
your first response is going to be, what about the job that you have for me right now? What about my parents that I'm taking care of? What about my kids? What about the stability? What about everything that I've known about? This has been my life. Again, when the call of the kingdom comes, you are following the one who is all-powerful. And when that call comes, you're saying, because you are all-powerful, I can trust And because he is the king now, we would say, okay, I trust you. I'm I'm going to follow you. Again, many of us aren't going to be called down to Utah, at least if God sticks with his pattern. He doesn't oftentimes uproot the majority of a church and just move them to another location. It's a few individuals here and there. But if God's kingdom is real in your life, there is always going to be a pattern of following him. No matter what it is. And so what ought to characterize people who are coming into this kingdom where Jesus is king and he exercises his rule and authority is if Jesus says it, if Christ calls me to it, I would say, okay, I will follow you because of who you are. And there are so many different aspects in life where Christ is calling us to follow him faithfully, where he will exercise his rule and authority in our lives. And the response for us is, okay, if you're calling me here or if you're calling me to this conversation or if you're calling me to press on this door and pursue this relationship or if you're calling me to this at work, the response is, yes, because of who you are, I'm tethered to you, I'm following behind you, I will submit and I will trust you. But we close with this where if he calls us, the weight of our ability to follow him is not found in us. It's found in who he is. He's the one with the power. He's the one with the authority. So when he calls, we should follow. Let's pray.